Good evening. Good to be with you this evening. Hope everyone's doing okay. If you want to get out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, that's where the sermon will be coming from this morning. I hope that the things that I've prepared this evening are helpful to you as they've been to me. Uh, We've been studying through different parables and seeing Jesus interacting with all kinds of different people, from tax collectors to uh, His own disciples and also to the Pharisees. And as we get into chapter 19, we see Jesus drawing close to Jerusalem. And and that's significant. As we look in the book of Luke, we notice back in chapter 9 that He sets His face to go toward Jerusalem. And as we get into chapter 19, we find that He is drawing near to Jerusalem. He is just outside of Jerusalem in the town of Jericho. And as He's approaching Jerusalem, we find in chapter 18 that for the third time He tells His disciples about His death. In chapter 18, verse 31, it says, "...and taking the twelve, He said to them, "'See, we are going up to Jerusalem.'" And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day He will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. So in chapter 18, we see he's drawing near to Jerusalem, and this is the third time he does this. He tells them, I'm about to die. I'm about to be killed. And you need to be aware of this. He wants them to know because all the things that are mentioned by the prophets are going to be accomplished. This is an exciting time in the ministry of Jesus. He's drawing near to Jerusalem. And now His disciples are being revealed, having revealed to them, Jesus is about to die. As Brent mentioned this morning, it's a great setup thinking about this. They don't comprehend this. They can't quite make sense of it all. Their understanding of the prophets is that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and like it says in Daniel and in Zechariah, He's going to wipe the place out. He's going to destroy it and He's going to take over and His kingdom will be set up and it will be an everlasting kingdom. It will be inaugurated. It will culminate there in Jerusalem and then from there it will spread. And they hear all of this that Jesus is saying and He says, I have to go to Jerusalem to die. And they just don't get it. When we get to chapter 19 and and look at verse 11, it says... As they heard these things, now these things includes uh, Jesus healing and, and Jesus coming with Zacchaeus' Zach, house, but it also includes what he has said before about his death. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately. So, to set up this parable that we're going to be studying tonight, we need to understand why Jesus said this parable. And Luke doesn't hide that from us. He reveals that to us right here in verse 11. He says, He spoke this parable because they supposed that the kingdom was going to come immediately. 
that God was going to establish His kingdom as they enter into Jerusalem. Something was going to happen. Some scene was going to take place where God's kingdom would be established and everything would would be changed like, like the prophets foretold. And as we read and as we study in the Old Testament prophets, we see little sections of Messianic texts that talk about this kingdom, and we can read it in less than a minute. And we get the picture of all that God is planning to do is He's going to come in and establish this kingdom and destroy and set up His king, this new son of David. And we think, yeah, it it happens all at once. It happens immediately. It happens at the same time. And the disciples as well also thought that. But notice how Jesus tells this parable to help them understand that's not really the way that this is going to happen. That's why He's telling them this parable. So let's read it together and see what He means and how He's going to approach this issue that we see them having. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So here's our parable. And we're looking at this and we're understanding the setup and we're understanding why Jesus spoke this parable as Luke reveals it to us. But are we not a little confused about the meaning of this parable? How does it illustrate the kingdom? It seems as though it's not really focused on that. Is it, is it really illustrating for us the kingdom? And why does He reveal this to them this way? This whole idea of a nobleman receiving a kingdom and telling his servants to engage in business while he goes to get it, isn't that kind of foreign to us? I mean, <laughs> what do we think of whenever a king is set up? 
Well, a king died, and the next king is going to take the throne. And that's the way that we see a kingdom happening, or a takeover happens in some way. But notice Jesus doesn't say that that's the way this is going to happen. He's pointing to something else that would have actually made sense if you were alive at that time. You see, recent events that the disciples would have been aware of make this a really logical parable. It would have made sense to them. It, it, it would have worked for them. Because not many years prior to this, the king of Judea, Judah, under Caesar of Rome, King Herod the Great, was over the land. He's called a king because he's done some great work and he's given the title of king. But he dies. And his son, Archelaus, is raising up and he wants to be given the title king. But that's not a title that's given because the king dies anymore in this situation. He has to go to Rome to receive the title of king. So he does. He, he leaves Judea. He goes to Rome with his family. And there's a group of Jews who follow him there. And they protest against him becoming king, saying, we don't want him to be king over us. He's a terrible guy. Even his own family says, we don't want him to be king. And there's Jews in Rome as well who rise up and say, we don't want him to be a king. So what happens? Well, Caesar doesn't make him king, but he gives him a title very similar to king. And he goes back to his home country and all those enemies that rose up against him, 3,000 Jews, are slaughtered for their rebellion against Archelaus. So this event has transpired in recent decades. And here is Jesus giving a parable that sounds a whole lot like what just happened not too long ago. And he says, whenever I become king, it will be more like that than what you're thinking it will be like. It'll be like a nobleman who goes away into a far country and he goes there to receive his kingdom. And he receives it and then he returns and he takes care of his accounts and he takes care of his enemies. So that's the picture that is given for us to explain that the kingdom's not coming in the immediate sense. It won't be inaugurated and culminated all at one time. But instead, Jesus will, release, will, will receive the kingdom and He will then return and the, at the culmination of it. When we look at the New Testament, we see this happen. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, we see the inauguration of the kingdom. With Jesus ascending up into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God, being given the Holy Spirit and giving it to the apostles as they go out and do the work. And then as we get into 1 Corinthians 15, we see the culmination of the kingdom. That He's going to reign until all His enemies are a footstool for His feet. He has that picture of, of the peak of His empire, of the kingdom being established and firmly planted on the earth. And we're not there yet. This is the way that Jesus had seen the kingdom coming in the future. And so He says this parable to try to help them understand what it's really going to be like. It's not going to be like they supposed, or maybe like we might suppose the kingdom coming. It's going to be a process that will take place over a considerable amount of time, with the inauguration and the culmination coming in time. 
But did you catch as we're reading this parable that it's really not focused in on the kingdom coming? I mean, it's about that. That's obviously a primary point in the parable. But there's another point that Jesus is making. It's as though he, he recognizes the need for you to, for the disciples to understand the nature of the kingdom. How it's going to come and, and how long it's going to come and, and how long it's going to take. But there's also a, a bigger issue at hand. The disciples need to stop focusing on that aspect. And need to start thinking about their responsibilities in the kingdom. So as we look at this parable, we start to see Jesus talking about responsibilities. He talks about the nobleman having servants. And before he leaves to receive the kingdom, he gives those servants a mina. A mina is three months pay. He gives each of them, ten of his servants, a mina in order to go out and to use, and he says, to engage in business until I come back. So he gives them an opportunity to do work for the king. He gives them responsibility to take care of. It's kind of like a responsibility test for them to engage in, to see how they'll do and see what they'll do with what they're given and how they'll handle this kind of situation. And as the story goes on, we see two different types of servants. There's only three of the ten servants who are given a mina. Only three of them are talked about in greater detail. And there's only two different types. There's the first two servants who are good servants, right? They, they do what the master has commanded them to do. One produces ten minas and he says your mina has made you ten. Another produces five minas. They're diligently working while their master is gone and working hard to make sure that they prepare for the master's return. But then there's a second type of sermon, uh, of servant who just ignores the the call and the responsibility that he's given altogether. Instead of doing what he's supposed to do, he's lazy and he's careless. He just excuses his disobedience as though it's no big deal. And he does whatever he wants to do. We see in these two different types of servants, two different types of of attitudes. The first two servants are very diligent even while their master is away. The master is not in town anymore, right? You ever been at work and people have this attitude? The, the, the cat is away, so the mice will play. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And we see that in different people as we work together, and we're tempted to fall into those same scenarios. Hey, he's away. We can do whatever we want now. We get to enjoy ourselves. But we don't see that in these servants that are good. We see them instead embracing the responsibility that is given to them. They are desiring to do what the master would have them do even when the master is not there with them. And whenever whenever the master comes back, notice their attitude is one of humility. They don't say, Lord, I have made you ten minas. They say, your mina has made ten more minas. They have this idea, this attitude of humility toward the master that he is the reason why they're able to produce anything. And so they say, look, Lord, here's your mina, and it's made you ten more minas. They don't pay attention to themselves. 
or their work. They're just diligently serving their master and they're embracing their work. As though it is a joyful thing that they could serve their master. As though they're indebted to their master for giving them this opportunity. But we also see that the other servant is just completely disregarding his work. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You're not understanding you don't do good things for people. You don't you reap what you didn't sow, right? He says those kinds of things. It's almost as though his attitude has come from the enemies of the master. As though he has bought into their belief system about the master. You're a severe man and I wouldn't really want you ruling over me. So I'm not really going to serve you. I'm not really going to do what it is that you asked me to do. So I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to focus on me and what I want. I'm going to be selfish and think about myself and my living. And and you're just going to have to deal with that. It's almost as though this servant believes that the master is just going to excuse this. You can't do anything to me because I'm your servant. And you weren't here to guide me with what to do, so... You can't punish me for this. It's almost as though he's trying to manipulate him and say, you know, you're a really mean guy. Kind of testing him to see if he'll really be mean back to him or if he'll say, you're right, I know I'm I'm too hard. Let me just ease up a little bit. Have you ever seen the the child who does this to the parent that that manipulates the parent and says, you're a bad mommy (laughs) or you're a bad daddy. Trying to manipulate, trying to make them feel bad so that they don't get punished. It's kind of how I feel this servant is acting like he can excuse his behavior and claim that the master is not understanding if he gives a punishment. There's two different attitudes that we see in these two different servants. One's embracing the idea of serving the master. And one is completely rebelling against and ignoring the work that he's being being given. And as a result, we see two different Outcomes in these servants. When the king comes back, he calls them all to give an account. And notice the phrase that is given at the, at the end in verse 26. He says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the mentality of the king. As we're looking at this parable, we're seeing the attitude of the servants. Now we're seeing revealed to us the attitude of the king. If you have been given much and you are doing something with it, you're going to be given more. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be given even greater responsibilities. Notice how he says, I'm going to set you up over ten cities. The guy just had a mina, three months' wages. <laughs> and he made it into ten minas. And now he gets ten cities. You think he's prepared for that kind of responsibility? Well, the king thinks so. Because the, the king sees his faithfulness. He sees his attitude. He sees his desire to serve the king with what he has. His joy in doing those things. But he also says, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The one who doesn't do anything with the opportunity that I give them, 
The one who ignores that opportunity, that responsibility, will have all the blessings that I've given to them taken away from them. In other words, the king's not going to be manipulated. The bad servant can't coerce the king into doing things that are unjust, that are wrong, permitting the bad servant to to disobey, to rebel. He's not going to be tricked into that. Notice he says, okay, you want to call me severe? You want to call me bad? You want to call me not understanding? You'll see how ununderstanding I am. You'll see how severe I can really be. And he says, I'm going to give you what you deserve. He gave all the servants the same opportunity. But the question is, what did they do with it? What did they do with the responsibilities that they were given? Well, I think we can learn some very valuable lessons as we look at this parable. We see that the king really values those who value him. That he cares for those who care for him. That he wants to bless those who are blessing him. And that he's willing to give the judgment that's needed to those who rebel against him. And as we look at this, we also see that the same still applies to us. Our king is away on a faraway journey. That's still true for us. As much as it was true for the disciples. And he has promised to come back, to return, and to give and to take account for the things that we have done. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4. Hold your place there, we'll come back. But 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10, this is what Peter says. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of, the very, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this text, we see very clearly, we have all received a gift. Each of us have received some gift, some ability, some mina that we are trusted with, that we have the responsibility to use, to care for. That responsibility could be our families. That could be our our church family. That could be our ability to speak, as Peter pointed out. Our ability to serve other people. As Peter pointed out, there's different levels of speaking. I've talked to Christians who felt as though they had no ability to get up and, and speak in front of people. Therefore, they can't do anything for the church. And that's not even close to the truth. There's so many works. There's so many gifts that are given among the body that helps the body to grow. And each member is given their gift with an expectation that they would use that gift. To God's glory. These gifts that we are given are our responsibility for God. What's your gift? Do you know what your gift is? 
Are you seeking to find out what your gift, what your ability is? Are there things that that we can be doing that we're not doing because we're just letting those gifts go? This is the message that we find in this parable that, that the gifts that we're given are supposed to be used. These are our responsibilities. But the question is for us, what are we going to do with our responsibility? The master is away on a faraway journey. What are we going to do with the time that we have here in his absence? We must not ignore our responsibility. This is the message of the parable that as we look at the bad servant, the majority of the time is spent talking about the bad servant and and he, he just lets it go. Notice how careless he is. It's, it's as though he receives three months pay. Imagine receiving three months pay and he puts it in a handkerchief and he just sets it aside and does nothing with it until the master returns. He doesn't even bury it to protect it. He doesn't, as the, as the king says, he doesn't invest it in anything. He doesn't do anything with it. Instead, he just ignores it. He lets it come to no use whatsoever for the king and he just lets it go. Well, why would we do that with our talent? Why would we do that with our ability? Why would we do that with our families? Why would we do that with our church family? Why would we remove God's work for those around us and for God from our lives? Why would we let those things just slip away unused? Is it because there's other things that are more important? You know, I kind of wonder about this servant. What was he thinking? (laughs) The words that he says aren't true. The master is not a harsh man. He's not a severe man. He's not someone to really be afraid of. You do what you're supposed to do. You're going to get blessed. We see that. What was he thinking that led him to believe it was going to be okay for him to just let the talent, let let the mina go? And do nothing with it. Was he looking around himself and thinking, Oh, look at that guy over there. He's got ten talents out of that one talent. You know what? He's good. The king's got plenty of money now. He should be satisfied. I'm just going to take it easy and focus on myself. You know, if he's thinking that, it's a lot like we can think, isn't it? We can think that. We can see someone working so hard and think, wow, they're doing a lot. I, I don't want to take away from them. And they're doing enough. You know, we can't think that way. This is the way that, that we think that we might ignore our responsibilities, that we might ignore our roles. How many of us have, have felt this? How many of us have felt as though we have some gift or some ability, but we haven't used it? We haven't utilized it. We just let it go. We just let it go to waste. And we don't know why, but we find ourselves weeks and months without even trying to do anything for the Lord. Yeah, we come to church services, but throughout the week, we're just going through the motions. We just have things in our lives that are distracting us. We have uh, money. We have, we have things. We have family. We have all these other things that are secular. And, and we're focusing on the secular side of life a little more than we ought to. And we're just ignoring the work that God has given us to do. But when we read this parable, 
we see that even though we're stuck in a rut and we think that we, we can't get out of it, we have to. We cannot justify our laziness to the king. We can't manipulate the king. We can't do anything that might make it to where it's okay for us to continue on in our apathy and in our laziness. There's no justifying this. There's no saying it's okay for me to do whatever I want to do right now. They've got it covered. Or it's okay, God will understand. There's no saying if God judges me, then He's not a very understanding God. That's what this parable tells us. We can't be lazy with our gifts, with our abilities. We can't think that God's going to be okay with us as we're focusing on ourselves and letting the work go. He put us here. He blessed us with gifts, with responsibility that we might use it to His glory. And this this text tells us very clearly we can't ignore it. Because what happens to the servant who ignores it? The blessings that he has are taken away from him. He may not be slaughtered in front of the king like the enemies are, but he has no blessings. The blessings of the kingdom are no more. Because why? He did what he wanted to do. Instead of doing what the king had called him to do. We all have gifts. We all have abilities. Are we ignoring those abilities? Are we ignoring the service that we could be giving to those around us that we might grow the church? Or are we using them? This is what we see in the first two servants that's so amazing. They don't just think, well, I've got this gift, I've got this mina, I've got a king coming, I better do something with it. I'll put it in the bank that it may gain interest. You notice how they don't do that? Notice their attitude. We, we talked a little bit about their attitude. They weren't, they weren't really concerned about just getting the work done in order to go and play, in order to go and do their own things. It seems as though they have an attitude that wants to do as much work as they can. They're not satisfied with just one talent, right? They make a talent in addition to the... Uh, Mina, uh, one mina in addition to the mina that they're given. And then that's good. Now I can relax. Now I can play. I've done my service for the Lord. I'm finished. And now I get to do whatever I want to do. No, they found satisfaction in the work that they're doing. They kept going. Oh, that mina made another mina. Let's see how many we can make for our master. That was more so their attitude. And whenever we look at this and we see that kind of attitude in them, we see that they desire more work. They desire to do more and more for the service of the future king. And so the king gives them responsibilities in addition to the ones that they had previously. If we're not in it for the work, if we don't want to work for the master, then we're not like these servants. They have a drive. They have a desire. They have a diligence. They ask themselves, what can I do for the Lord? And how can I do it well? We considered our gifts. Is this the way we look at our gifts? What what else can I do? 
Oh, I haven't tried that yet. Let me see if I can do that. Well, I'm really bad at it. Maybe I can get better at it. Or do we think, what do I have to do? You know, that's, that's the way that I can, I can find myself thinking, what do I have to do to get what I need to get done? But we don't see that in these servants. They seem to be desiring to serve the Master. They don't think about what all they've done in the past. They think about what they can do for the Master. This is a work that we get to do. A lot of the work that we do as we're just trying to survive, as we're moving our way through life, is work that we need to do just to survive, just to provide for our families. It's it's work that is required just in order to have a decent life, a decent quality of life. But we don't have to do this work if we don't want to. We need to value this work. And we need to think that this is a volunteer work. This is something I volunteer for. I voluntarily spend my time and spend my efforts serving God, working for God, learning about Him. Because I know that He's a good God, that He's a good King, that He's going to reward me if I'm faithful to Him more abundantly than I deserve. So as we look at this parable, we need to ask ourselves, do we value our king and do we value the work that the king has given us to do? Are we willing to spend the time and the effort to do those things? And will we find satisfaction in doing the work that the king's given us to do? Is this our hobby? Is this what we do for fun? Do we get our kicks out of serving others around us and showing them how much we love them, how much we care for them? Hopefully we do. As we see in this parable, the kingdom is this process that we're going through. We're in this time period where we can have so much of an impact on spreading the kingdom. And the kingdom's going to keep spreading until the time comes that Jesus returns. And when he, when he returns, we will have had the opportunity to use what we've been given for His service. And we'll be held accountable for what we've done with that. So how do you feel about that responsibility that's been placed in your hands, your gift? Are you focusing on it? Is it more than just coming to church services? Is there more that, that you could be doing to serve the Lord? Do you desire to do those things? Do you desire to help the church grow? We need your help. The work that's being done here is not a work for just a few members. It's a work for every member. And those who are here tonight are the members who desire to know more about God. Let us also desire to serve God by helping those around us. How are you considering your responsibility? Do you have that responsibility? Have you put on Christ and submitted to His will? Is Christ your King? If He is, then we want to encourage you as we sing this song. But if He's not, we want you to be sure to make that change before it's too late. To come to know God, to come to know your King, and to serve Him faithfully as we are. Please come if you have need. Please come as we stand and sing.